Well, thank you uh, for sticking with this prayer theme that we began in January, and uh, this will be the last uh, moment in that series, although our, our theme and our text for the whole year continues to be, Lord, teach us uh, to pray. When we hit uh, the autumn, just in a few weeks' time after August, we're going to start something brand new together uh, called Global Gospel, looking at the way God has made us part of a church that is now worldwide in every sense, that we join with brothers and sisters around the whole world, seeking to be his people where we are and seeking to partner with them where they are. So those of you who know something of our journey as a church and how uh, in recent months we've been looking at our whole mission giving, our mission partnership and our mission support and how we've been having a review and how we'll be working in the autumn together and beyond towards coming to some conclusions about how we might better partner with other gospel people around the world. We're going to bring into our worship week by week, uh, following the book of Acts, the whole theme of what God seeks to do with us and through us, not just here, but also around the world. That'll take us right up to Advent, and then on Advent Sunday, uh, which is the last Sunday in November, usually, although sometimes it is the first Sunday in December, it can be that, we'll start something brand new that will take us right through 2011 together, and I'm really excited about that, but it's quite a long way off, so we'll talk more about that uh, in due course. So that's where we're headed together for the rest of this year. Prayer of restoration. There are many other kinds of prayers that we simply didn't get time for. There's the prayer of healing that we didn't look at and the prayer of listening and the prayer of guidance and, uh, uh, and other things besides. So rich is this whole journey of what it means to pray. But I want to end here. What does it mean to pray a prayer that restores me from the inside out? One of the most thrilling things about being in ministry here is the stuff that happens quietly and out of anybody's eye and notice when when God works restoration in people's hearts and in people's lives. And even these last few weeks, God's been restoring people in their hearts and in their lives. And that doesn't need an appointment or or a session. It just needs God and the Holy Spirit. How do we be people that live lives and pray prayers that, that, that bring us week by week, even moment by moment, to this place of being restored by uh, God. You'll know the story of uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and uh, you might want to just open the Pew Bibles to it for me. If someone can just find the, the Pew Bible number, that would, that would be helpful. And uh, there's this woman, as we know, who goes to collect water, and she's lived a life. She's tried to find what she's looking for in human relationships. In fact, she's had five husbands. She's tried it five times. And each time it didn't work out. It didn't bring her what she was looking for. Page number, somebody? 1066. 1066, William the Conqueror. It's the only date I know. It's fantastic. Don't know anything else about it. Seems totally pointless to me, but still. 1066, there it is. Okay, John chapter 4. So this woman, she's trying to find what she's looking for in human relationships, and Jesus begins to introduce her to the fact she can only really find what she's looking for, not in a human relationship, but in a relationship with God himself, through Jesus, who will give her living water. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd ask him, Why? Because he can give you exactly what you are looking for and he would have given you living water. 
And then verse 13, Jesus answers her, everyone who drinks this water, the water from this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will come in him, will become in him, sorry, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This water is what you're looking for. Here it is. You find it not in a human uh, set of relationships or in human provision, but you will find an eternal provision through the water that I give. The woman is open and says, I want that. That's what I need. That's what I'm looking for. That's, what I, that's the life that I've craved. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Many of us find ourselves in that place. We know that humanly we're spent. We haven't been able to find what we're looking for in something human. In something human, material-wise, it hasn't delivered what we're looking for. Even in our relationships, all of us will know, even in our good relationships, they don't quite cut it. They don't quite get deep enough. In fact, sometimes we try and make our human relationships give us what only God can give us, and we put enormous pressure on those human relationships, and so often they end up in a very difficult place, because we're expecting them to give to us what only God can give. So this woman's like, wide awake, well, I want that, I need that living water, that's what I'm after. And Many of us, if not all of us here, would go, I I need that. That's the abundant life of which Jesus speaks. I need that. I've tried all this other living, and I know in my heart it doesn't deliver. I need that water. And the good thing about the water is it's free. Amazing grace. It's offered to you. But don't miss what Jesus said next that in our enthusiasm for the gospel, we often miss or play down. And then we leave people not experiencing the life that Jesus came to give. The next thing Jesus said to the woman was, go, call your husband and come back. If you really want this living water, if you really want to know this abundant life, if you really want to live a different kind of way where the wells from heaven spring up within you, then you have to face the reality of who you are and what you've been, even if it's not very palatable. It was awkward for her to go get a husband because he wasn't quite her husband. That's embarrassing for her. And embarrassing even more when Jesus says, well, I know about that and I know about the other five, so don't get too uptight. I knew before I even started talking to you. But here's this call for this woman. She has to face who she really is and what she's really been. And my experience is this, that in our Christian lives, We call out to God for the living water. We come to Jesus. We invite him into our lives. But we're not always particularly good at facing who we really are and what we've actually been. Why? Because we feel guilty about it. So we push it down. We know we can't talk about it in church because everyone will go... So we've got no one to share it with. And so it stays deep within us. Restoring prayer is about seeing that change. And Jesus said much the same thing, didn't he? When he taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then what? Forgive us. Forgive us. 
You cannot pray the prayers Jesus taught without facing who you really are. Forgive us before we pray for forgiveness from others. That's the easy bit, isn't it? Because we know what they've done wrong. The hard bit is knowing where I've been wrong and asking God to forgive where I've been wrong. Now you might say that's obvious. It's not obvious. In fact, time and time again, the Bible gives us stories and paints pictures of people that were blind to what was wrong in their own lives. Jesus talks about it. You can get the speck out of someone else's eye, but you're an idiot because there's a whacking great plank in your own eye and you can't see it. And you look daft walking down the road with it. But you don't notice it. Just a speck in somebody else's eye. Jesus says we live like that. We live not seeing the wrong that's within us. And that's what this prayer is all about. Search me and know me. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way. Any way that does not line up to God's abundant life. Anything that isn't his full life is offensive to him. Would you agree? He created us to know his life in all its fullness. Any mark below that is offensive to him. And then lead me in this way that is the way of everlasting. The whole premise of these verses is that even though David was described as a man after God's own heart, even David didn't know some of the things that were wrong in him. He wasn't good at facing who he really was. Like the woman at the well, go back, David wasn't particularly good in some aspects of his life of seeing where his mistakes were, where his failings were. What about you? And me? Things in my life that need confessing and forgiving and healing. And I'm not even sure I know that they're there. It's alarmingly easy for us not to know the things that are wrong. Because we all have silent consciences. Our conscience is a great gift from God, wouldn't you agree? A great marker deep in our souls of, of tuning us in to what's right and what's wrong. All over the world, people exhibit this, this, this deep inner sense that there is something more. It makes it hard to be an atheist because they don't quite understand where that came from. And real atheists are hard to find because it's really hard work to live genuinely without giving any adherence to some absolute above yourself. There are these consciences. But they need training. And with good training, we can silence our consciences. With good training, our consciences can remain silent when they should be screaming at us. Why is it that someone can walk into somebody else's house, even if they are there, take their things and walk out again, then go down the pub for a pint? If I went into somebody's back garden without permission, my conscience would be screaming. No? You wouldn't have a problem with that? <laughs> Double lock my house. Come on. Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't bat an eyelid. When I disturbed a burglar in our house 
uh, some years ago, in my study, there he was. He was as cocky and as large as life as you could imagine. Was his conscience screaming at him? Not at all. His conscience was absolutely silent. Was it always like that? No. No. But he'd chosen over a period of time to learn to ignore it. And now when it should be screaming, it no longer spoke at all. It's true for you and me, isn't it? In all kinds of things. Areas of our lives where our consciences today only whisper when they should be screaming. The anger that flares up, so used to it, our conscience doesn't scream at us anymore. The selfishness of our choices, our conscience should be screaming, but we've taught it to be silent. The arrogance with which we can dismiss others, so familiar to our our approach to life and our personality, our consciences barely speak now. The ease with which we can watch violence and perversion on the telly. Our conscience should scream, but we've trained it to be quiet in that area. I can watch it and barely regard it as anything unusual. Inadvertently, unwittingly, in some areas of our lives, different for all of us, we've trained our consciences to be silent. Once we are sued, said Sidney Harris, our conscience, by calling something a necessary evil, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. How much more then will, says the writer to Hebrews, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself pure and blemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. I need God to cleanse my conscience, show that it screams in the way it was made to scream and not whisper when it should be shouting. The truth is we have silent consciences and the truth is that God searches and sees all in our lives for what it is. The Lord searches every heart and understands every motive. This is tricky, isn't it? You can kid other people by the things that you do. I'm kidding people because I'm always here on a Sunday. I'm always willing to help. I'm always serving in this way, that way, and that way. I'm kidding everybody and maybe myself that everything's fine between me and God. God searches our hearts and understands our motive. He sees when I'm doing something, not because I'm in right relationship with him, but because I want to impress somebody else. He sees when I'm doing something, not because I'm in right relationship with him, but because I want to feel better about myself. And I know if I do that good thing and that good thing, I'll think to myself, what a good boy. God sees, searches the motives of our hearts. And there we find things that quite frankly stop us living in God's abundance. Every area of my life that's ruled by self is a barrier to what God wants to do in me. Every area of your life that's ruled by self is a barrier to what God wants to do in you. And let's make no mistake, you can be a Christian, committed to Christ, committed to the truth, committed to the church, and still controlled by self. That's not grace, but controlled by self. Imagine a cup that's full of crud or sediment. 
you know after the kids have made hot chocolate and left it for several days in their bedroom? I don't have children like that. I'm imagining that you might. So you get... And it's just there, and it's like solid, and it's there. And you pour clean water into that cup. What colour is the water? Brown. Brown. The lining of your life and mine, in our humanness, in our natural state, is lined with all kinds of crud and sediment. It doesn't matter how much life-giving water gets poured in, what will that crud and sediment do to that life-giving water? Turn it into something putrid. That pure, life-giving water combined with my crud is a pretty ugly combination. There is crud in the cup of all our lives. Or to ask the question another way, how much self is there? You see, it's always self that messes things up. Have you noticed that? It's self that gets irritable. It's self that's envious. It's self that's resentful. It's felt self that's critical. It's self that's worried. Because when you're worried, that's a sin, because we're not trusting in the fullness of God. It's self who is hard and unyielding in its attitudes to others. It's self that's shy and self-conscious and reserved. As long as self is in control, God can do little with us. Pray for God to fill you, and he will in part. But that self and crud, the sediment in our lives, will turn it still into something not that great. Which is why Paul wrote, well, I've got to sort self out. Self has to be removed. Self has to die. I've been crucified with Christ. My, My self needs to die. It's the only way. For as long as there's crud, as long as there's self in my life, I'll never live in the fullness that God has for me. No longer I, but Christ. And as someone cleverly once put it, remember that a sea... For Christ is a bent eye. Has the eye of your life been bent towards Christ? Because that's what it takes for us to live this abundant life. And so often we know that the Bible talks of abundant life up here and my experience is down here somewhere and our first reaction is to blame God. The Bible says it shouldn't be like this. Why am I down here when the Bible says I should be experiencing life up here? The answer so, so often is that we haven't been prepared in some areas of our lives to see I bent into sea. To see that crud, that sediment, that deep painful thing to be dealt with and worked through. Anything that springs from self, self self-energy, self-complacency, even in Christian service, becomes a sin. Self-pity in trial or difficulty, self-seeking in business or even in Christian work, self-indulgence in one's sensitivities, touchiness and resentments, self-defense when hurt or injured, self-consciousness, reserve, worry, fear, all spring from self. And they line so often the cup of our lives, my life, your life. But there's another cup, isn't there? Bible talks of another cup. Another cup. There in the garden, 
hours before Jesus died on the cross, he talked about the cup. The cup that was filled with all that sediment, all that crud. That when Jesus died on the cross, he drank the fullness of that cup. The fullness of your wrong and mine. The fullness of the sediment that lines our lives. So that we might be cleansed from it all. Because it's as simple as this. God chose us to save us. This prayer of restoration asks God to to show me, to search me. Why does God do that? So that he can condemn us? No. So that he can rescue us and save us from it. It's a mark of how far we are from God. Sometimes when you find out something else about someone else, they're others' failings. You're glad, deep in your heart, because of the resentment that you hold. God could be as resentment as the hills towards us for the way that we've behaved. But he shows us what's wrong only that he might save us. It's a mark of his grace. A mark of his grace. So dare we? Dare we pray these kinds of prayers? Dare I ask God to show me the sediment that I can't see for myself? Well, if I want the life, then I must. And will that be the end of the world as it feels? We think if someone knew who I really was, then the whole world would fall apart. Well, two things are true. One, the world doesn't fall apart. The second thing that's true is that we find a grace from heaven that's deeper and wider than we've ever known when we're honest with who we are. Think about what the woman at the well discovered when she did go back. And when she was honest, she said, look, Jesus, well, he's not my husband, really. And there are five others. And it's time to live a different way. The trouble is we've got so used to the things that so easily entangle us. We've got so used to the things that hinder us that we no longer feel an urgency about throwing them off. So what are the signs then? of us praying this prayer and of God moving in our lives. The first sign is conviction. Is conviction. Tears of of sorrow. When I discover something that's still been part of my life, that in my consciousness I've ignored and, and put off, when I discover it's still there, when I discover how destructive it is to me, when I discover how damaging it is in my relationships, when I discover above all how detrimental it is to God's purpose in my life, then it creates sorrow. For too long I haven't realised that it was there. But in that moment that I see it, if I really see it, I will be sorrowful about it. When I see it and diminish it, when I see it and say it doesn't matter very much, when I see it and say, well, I've always been like that, it's just the way I am, when I see it and say, well, so-and-so's like that as well, I haven't really seen it yet. When I really see it, when I see the wrong in me for all its ugliness, when I see that that kind of wrong is what put Jesus on the cross, when I see it, I'm convicted and tears will flow. Tears of sorrow. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
and said to Peter and other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, that, that moment, that moment is the most significant moment in our spiritual journey. It feels dreadful. To look yourself in the mirror and realise something that you haven't tried to accept about yourself is a really horrible moment. But it is the moment when God's healing grace begins to flow. True? Hallelujah. That's the moment. What shall I do? Well, I can't do anything. I can't put this right. What have we done? These people were going, what have we done? We put Jesus on the cross. This is Acts chapter 2. And Peter was saying, well, you guys killed him. You're mad. He was the man from God to save us and you killed him. And suddenly they see it for what it is and they're cut to the heart. What shall we do? That moment when you see the mess, the crud, the sediment and you cry to God, what shall we do? It's the moment that the whole of heaven breaks and his mercy and his grace begins to flow. It's a horrible moment but it's the beginning of much grace and much healing. When the sun, S-O-N, shines on our lives, and just like those windows, we see it for what it is, is a hard but a glorious moment. So when was the last time, when was the last time you saw something about your life like that? That's the sign of the Spirit's work. The Bible says the Holy Spirit searches the depths of our hearts as we let him. The sign of the Spirit's work will be moments when you go, my goodness, look at that. I'm so sorry for that. Let's go back to David for a moment. Because David had a classic moment, didn't he, of just not seeing what was obvious. You'll you'll know the story. David was now the king and uh, he could have what he wanted. So he saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. And he thought, I want her. So he had her. And it got a little bit tricky because Bathsheba became pregnant. And so not only had he had what he wanted, but now suddenly he was going to be exposed. So he asked Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was out fighting, to come uh, uh, back home. But Uriah did come back home, but he didn't sleep with Bathsheba. Saying, "How how can I sleep with my wife when the rest of the gang are still at war? David's plan was foiled. Then he arranges to have Uriah killed. And before he knows it, he's an adulterer and a murderer. And he thinks he's got away with it. He thinks he's got away with it. Publicly, he has got away with it. It went on for at least a whole year. So for a whole year, he thinks he's got away with this crime. Although, if you read some of the Psalms that he wrote during this time, he knows in his heart he's got away with nothing. Do you know the Psalms he writes? I'm wretched. My bones are breaking and aching within me. I can't sleep at night. There's a darkness over me. Some deep, deep laments before God. He hadn't escaped. But he couldn't see it. All the same. So Nathan comes along, the prophet. And Nathan says this story. It's in 2 Samuel 12, but I'll read it to you. The Lord said, uh, sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb 
that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against that man. It's interesting, isn't it? David is acutely angry about the wrong in somebody else that's exactly the same as his own. Be very wary about the things that you're critical about in others. It's often a sign about what lurks in our own hearts. If you're jumping up and down about something, take a long, hard look in the mirror. David was really angry about the sin of that man, even though it was exactly the same in his own. And David says quite simply, hey David, you're that man. And then David sees it. For the first time, David sees it clearly. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Be careful who you're quick to condemn. The same sin often resides in us. We need to see it as God sees it. And David, above all else, understood that his sin was not against Bathsheba, however terrible that was. His sin was not against Uriah, however terrible that was. David, in the end, understood that above all else, his sin was against God. His sin was against God. Tears of sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. You can't be really sorrowful and not want to change, can you? When children say sorry, they're not always sorrowful, are they? Sorry! It's more like I'll collect 200 pounds as I pass go. Sorry. Because their change needs a little more work, usually. And we can be sorry without being sorrowful. That's not what this is about. It's about a deep sorrow that says, I I can't go on like this. I see it for what it is. And I need, I must, and I will turn around. And that's the real mark of revival in our hearts. And then we receive something quite wonderful. We receive the forgiveness from heaven that turns our tears of sorrow into tears of joy. That the God of heaven, the one above all else who could hold that wrong against me, the one above all else who could say, well, you're never going to wriggle off that hook, sunshine. The one above all else who has every right in the universe to hold me in condemnation says, I forgive you. Even when human beings don't, God does. Even when those around you hold on to something you've done, God will let you go. Even when you're holding on to something, and that's a tricky one, isn't it? When I'm holding myself in chains for something I've done, God's forgiven me, but I can't quite yet forgive myself. We need to know if the God of heaven forgives me, then I can forgive myself. And if the God of heaven forgives me, then I need to work it out, whatever other human beings will do. I need to release them to God. And tears of joy can flow. But there's something more. There's something more. 1 John 1 verse 9. We used it in our prayers earlier on this morning. If you're not familiar with that verse, then then become familiar with it. It's incredibly important in this regard, in this journey. 1 John 1 uh, verse 9. God is faithful and just. He's faithful and just that if we confess our sins, 
if we see them for what they are, if we're honest about them, if we don't belittle them and, or push them down or ignore them, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and we'll do what? He'll forgive us. What an incredible thing. But you can be forgiven and still feel guilty for what you've done, can't you? So the second thing, really important, he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There are some of us here today who know we're forgiven, but we don't feel cleansed. We know we're forgiven, but we don't feel cleansed. He forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's an amazing thing. That's the moment that the life of God really flows in our hearts and out to others. So much so that David could say, look, I might have, I might have messed up, but God's renewing, restoring my salvation. He's bringing back to me the joy of what it means to be rescued. He's giving me a right spirit, Psalm 51. A right spirit. He's putting it right. Some of us need some of those things in the past to be put right. And that's what God offers. Forgiveness and a cleansing from all unrighteousness. So I dare you to make this a prayer. Daily, weekly, whatever. A real prayer. Yearning. Longing for God to show you. The things that, quite frankly, you honestly don't want to see. Things about you that, honestly, you hope no one else has seen. But things that God sees. And lies there in the depths of your heart. And stops us knowing the fullness of life that he came to bring. Prayer is the inner bath of love into which the soul plunges itself. Prayer is the inner bath of love into which the soul plunges itself. I need that. And so do you. We all need that. 